hiring the wrong people teaches you more about your culture and the way you work than hiring the right people. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. One third of women in the UK do not have easy or convenient access to contraception. 80% of those who are using contraception have reported side effects. These stats only get more dramatic when we look at them on a global scale. Following her own experience of having devastating side effects after being put on the wrong contraception, today's 40-minute mentor, Alice Pelton, decided to take matters into her own hands. That's why she started The Lowdown, the UK's leading sexual and reproductive health platform on a mission to put women in control of their reproductive health. The Lowdown is used by over 2 million women and Alice has single-handedly built the company from a bootstrapped website to a VC-backed seed stage startup, raising capital from Entrepreneur First, Calm Storm VC, Nina Capital and Speed Invest, plus some amazing angels, including former 40-minute mentor Ian Hogarth. I can't wait to find out more about The Lowdown and share Alice's incredible mentorship with you all. So Alice, welcome to 40 Minute Mentor. It's lovely to see you again. We last caught up at a founder's offsite retreat. So how are you doing? I'm very well, thanks, James. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a real pleasure. I'm very excited to dive into all things The Lowdown. But before we do that, let's warm you up with some quick fire questions. So please finish the following sentences after me. I grew up wanting to be... Pretty much anything. I'm a massive generalist. I find lots of jobs really interesting. So it went from a journalist to a policewoman to a teacher. Yeah, I I really want to try and have like three careers. And I think that's very doable now, isn't it? It's amazing to see people in their kind of 50s and stuff starting totally new careers. I remember speaking to somebody not too long ago whose mum had been in a you know, I think academia for ages and then ended up going into big tech as like a an AI specialist or something because she'd worked in that world and like totally new career, you know, in her, what you maybe a few years back would have said, you know, when a lot of people would be retiring. So uh, yeah, I'm all for that. The last time I cried was when? I was proposed to two weeks ago. Amazing. Um, yeah, so finally. <laughs> Nine years of my boyfriend, uh, I finally got engaged. So ah, I did not know this. Congratulations. That's amazing. Ah, and that is very worthy of tears, happy tears. Any plans for the big day already or is this is a little bit away? Potentially next year, but the thought of planning a wedding and running a company and everything at the same time is a little bit overwhelming at the moment. Fair enough. No, I totally understand that. Wow. Congratulations. How exciting. If there was one thing I could change about entrepreneurship, it would be... That it wasn't so hard. <laughs> oh, I feel you. Yeah, it's just really hard. <laughs> I totally get it. Yes, I know. And that it isn't so up and down. Um, I think over the years, I've got used to the like ups and the downs and I've I've, I recognize when I'm in them, but yeah, it's like such extreme highs and lows. Sometimes you just need a bit of a happy medium. Yes. I think particularly this past month, I've really been there with that again. Annoyingly, I don't think it changes, does it? You definitely level out. Like you, you don't feel the, the winds is like, as so, you know, incredible and the lows like so depressing. You tend to get a little bit more on an even keel with it. Sadly, I think it's going to always be a bit of a roller coaster. But yeah, I, I'm sure every founder listening to this is just like nodding along, going, Yeah, I'm there. I feel you. 
Um, final quick fire question. My biggest failure to date is? I've had a lot of failures. So it's probably just the culmination of failure over the years. So that includes like hiring the wrong people, ruining negotiations in fundraising, posting content that almost got us cancelled, getting us hacked on Instagram, just the, the kind of culmination of those failures. Nothing luckily has has ended it, but uh, it's, there's some stingers there for sure. Yeah, God. I mean, thank you for being so honest. I've done it so many times that, that it's nice to hear someone just, just put it all out there. So thank you. Cool. Well, I'm sure our audience have already sensed the fact that you are very honest and open and vulnerable. And, and that for me makes the best interview. So let's get into your, the story of the lowdown. So I know that it was a personal experience that led to the the creation of of the lowdown. So can you tell us a bit more about your own contraception experience and why this unfortunately is such a common experience for women? Yeah, so so like most 16-year-olds, I started taking the contraceptive pill and it took me a couple of years to realize that it was really impacting my personality. It made me feel really depressed and emotional. It impacted my relationships which is ironic given that often you go on contraception when you get into a new relationship. And it actually started to impact my ability to do my job. And over the years, I started to realize that it was the contraception that was the cause. And I kind of went on a 10-year journey to try and find the right contraception for me. And on that journey, I just realized what a complete shit show this space is for women to navigate. Huge lack of expert advice, confusing and kind of basic information online, huge problems actually accessing the, the method that you want. And I just realized through my own sort of 10-year journey that this is something that is just not acceptable in, in the, you know, in the 21st century and we really need to to change it. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. And you've said that a lot of your symptoms were easily pinned on just being a teenager. So when was it that you realized that there's more to it? Yeah, I actually remember very vividly, uh, I was packing the car to go to, I think it was like my second or third year of uni. So I was in my 20 or 21, I was about that old. And I'd gone on the pill again, two days before I started taking it again. And I screamed at my mum packing the car. And my mum just looked at me and was like, what is wrong with you? You're like, you know, why are you doing this? And she just was like, it's like you're a teenager again. And it then started to click in both of our heads that maybe it was the pill. And it had literally taken 48 hours to have that impact on me and my personality. And that was when the penny started to drop. That is really interesting. Where would you say the ultimate gap was in exploring this further and getting to the result of swapping your contraception quicker? Well, firstly, just a non-awareness, which glad, I'm really glad that the lowdown has changed, that your contraception can be really great and it can be really bad. And just having a, like a nuanced conversation about it and that stems from the fact that, like many millennials, I grew up in the 90s where I was surrounded by Tony Blair rhetoric of like teenage pregnancy being the worst thing that could ever happen to you. And therefore, contraception, you all have to take it. And if you don't, you'll all get pregnant immediately. So I do think like as a generation, we've been sort of that's literally been like put into our heads from a very young age. And it's made having a nuanced conversation about contraception really hard. But also just practically like the lack of information on the internet, you know, when I was Googling my symptoms, it was either sort of cosmopolitan articles about how to give good blowjobs or the NHS website. And there wasn't really anything in the middle that helped me figure out if these symptoms were potentially a cause or, you know, or if other women experienced those symptoms. 
And then I love GPs, but they don't have that much time. They're hugely under pressure and they only have sort of eight minutes in an appointment to really help you get to the bottom of what, you know, what contraception might be best for you. That is incredibly difficult once you've even begun to talk about just the safety aspects of contraception. So, yeah, just lack of time, a lot of lack of training. Contraception's historically been a very unsexy part of medicine that, you know, family planning is seen as sort of left outside almost of like normal medicine and training. So, but actually GPs prescribe 80% of it in the UK. So it's, yeah, it's just quite unloved. And and as a result, as a a patient, you get quite a, a poor experience. It makes me just think just how many people have suffered from this without having any clue at all. And I guess the problem that you're solving with the lowdown is is so impactful and so important. So I guess fast forward, like how did that experience, that realization at that point, take us through that journey of how it shaped the concept of the lowdown and how you then turned it from a concept to the platform that it is today? Yeah. So kind of throughout my twenties, I was working and I moved my career from sort of marketing to product management, working with tech teams, realized I love doing that and was working actually on a, a fantasy football game and spending a lot of time trying to teach hundreds of thousands of men how to best you know, choose their fantasy football team. And I realized, I was like, why am I spending all this time trying to help? You know, I love football. I love sport. Um, it's not just men, I'm, you know, men and women, but I just was like, it's fascinating how I'm spending all my time trying to help people pick the best 11 players, but there's nothing that's really helping women pick a contraceptive method that they're going to be on for 30 years and that could potentially impact their entire life. So it kind of got my cogs whirring and I went on sabbatical from that job. Um, I had this idea for a review platform for contraception. I decided to build it that year just as a side project, you know, with a friend so it, it was really, it just started as an experiment, something I was really passionate about, built the website, launched it in 2019. And the feedback we got was just like this tidal wave of, wow, why hasn't this existed? And we got loads of press coverage and it really just sort of kickstarted the momentum for the platform. And so I, I quit my job and yeah, started working on it full time. Amazing. We always like to tell the the you know the honest story of the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, as we said earlier. So, do you mind sharing with our audience some of the hurdles, the challenges you had to overcome in those early days? I think the biggest challenge was I was told, and you should always watch out for being given like generalized advice, that I needed a co-founder, otherwise I wouldn't be able to raise money for the business. And that was the probably the wrong advice. You know, I think there's very like generalistic painted and it's not always, it's not always the right way to do it. So definitely trying to bring a co-founder into the business when potentially it was too late was a bad idea. You know, fundraising is just very, very hard, like full stop. I've, you know, we'll talk about it a bit later on, but I just fundraising for a problem that potentially a lot, a lot of people know exists for something that historically hasn't received a lot of investment or attention. No, it's very, very fair. And look, uh, the stats speak for themselves in terms of female founders, underrepresented founders, there's still so much work to be done to level that playing field. I mean, it is the perfect segue, I guess, to talk a bit about your fundraising experience. I think the lowdown was bootstrapped initially, wasn't it, from from 2018 to 2020? Yeah. Which JBM is a bootstrap business. I'm all for it. And we've talked a lot about bootstrap companies on this series. But can you share a bit about what it was like to build a platform without that external money? And what then made you decide to switch to raising capital? It's amazing how when you bootstrap things 
because you don't have a lot of money and you don't even think to spend money. You know, it's not even like an option. Like my friend Adam did the logo, which is still the same logo today. Good for Adam. Yeah, he nailed it first time. I paid him £500. You know, like that was the brand. Like I went around Adam's house and we sat there and we were like, I really like that navy blue. I really like that pink and I really like that green. And we were like, great. And, you know, so I love looking back at like what we spent and how you can keep things really like hacky and, you know, simple in those days. You know, I filed my own trademark application because obviously I'm not going to pay a lawyer to do that. Like I'll just sit there for hours trying to figure out which classes we fit into. And I learned loads in the process. Like it was really interesting. I, you know, learned about everything. So I loved it. But also I want to build a really big, successful company that continues to impact and improve millions of women's lives. And um, a lot of people sort of assumed I'd maybe go down like the charity route or the nonprofit route, which is where historically a lot of contraceptive things are. But I was like, no, that's exactly the reason I don't want to go down that route because <laughs> no offense, but they haven't got that much money. Their experience isn't great. And you're going to get lumped in the same pool of NGOs and companies fighting for the same grants, which I just had no interest in doing or experience in knowing how to do. So yeah, it was quite obvious to me that I wanted to go down the VC route to really build something truly fantastic. And it was almost like my, you know, my duty to women at that point, given that how successful the initial platform was to give it a really good shot. So that's kind of how I ended up going into the VC route. Yeah, fair enough. We talked a bit about your experience, but tell us a bit more for anyone that might be going through it at the moment, uh, particularly any female founders that are perhaps facing some of the challenges that, that you did. Tell us a bit more about that. And are there things that in hindsight you wish you'd have done differently or are there things that would have made it easier for you? I mean, you only really know, learn this through doing. No one actually teaches you how to actually fundraise. Like, and by that, I mean how to send an intro email correctly, how to write the email that you send to investors. You know, there's a lot of stuff on the internet about how to write the perfect pitch deck, but there's not actually a stuff about like the logistics of like contacting, scheduling, thanking, following up, responding to people within 24 hours taking that second call, preparing for that, providing the data room, like all of those little bits you have to learn as you're doing. And the first time you do, you have no idea what you're doing. And you're just WhatsApping people the whole time being like, they've asked me this, do I do this or do I do this? And it's pretty horrible, actually. <laughs> I actually spoke to a bunch of female founders about this a few weeks ago, and I started to write a Word document about it. <laughs> if anyone listening wants to read it, it's just the stuff that I wish I'd known that this assumed knowledge, which I think often gets shared between founders. But if you're potentially like a new or a female founder, and because there's less of us, maybe there's less of us to share the knowledge and like the culture and the logistics knowledge that I just feel really strongly is very important. Um, I also wish I'd met my coach before I fundraised. I have a fantastic coach called Mika. The amount that that has helped me process and externalize and plan and strategize about what I'm doing. I wish I had a coach while I was fundraising. That would have really, really helped me as well. Uh, I've heard Mika's incredible. I know she coaches a lot of mutual founder friends. So um, yeah, and I think that's a growing, that's a really growing trend. And actually something that I think in hindsight, we, we've now got a coach for all of our team and you've really seen the development, like the very quick impact it can have in terms of personal and professional development. So I'm all for coaching. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of interest in that document. Thank you for offering that up. 
you've obviously raised from both like really high profile VCs and then like amazing angels. We mentioned Entrepreneur First, Speed Invest, et cetera. And then the likes of Sarah Drinkwater, who's very well-renowned, and, and Ian Hogarth, who came on the, the podcast before. When you're pitching, like, what are the differences in, in approach or style when you're pitching to VCs versus to angels? Because I'm sure that's something right now founders will be probably looking at both avenues. I personally really like the personal side of pitching and working with angels. I feel like there's a genuineness to the relationship and they can help you see how the VC space sees you. So they can be this amazing sort of like prism of, especially someone like Ian, who can within 20 minutes analyze like either what's going wrong or right with your fundraise and how people are receiving it and why either the story's working or not working. So angels are absolutely critical for that. It's just quicker, isn't it? They don't have a team. They they kind of often make the decision on the first call and they're quite quick to tell you. They're very respectful of your time in general because most of them have been founders and understand how hard it is and the process that you're running is. So I just love that sort of inbuilt preparation that they have to truly help you with what you need then and there. And if it's not investing in you, then that's fine. I've actually had some brilliant discussions with angels who never invested, but I still look at the notes from our calls like a year later and I'm like, yeah, that was such a good point. I really need to do that. So I kind of mop it all up and say, thanks so much for your time. I'd love to come back to you. Um, and, and that's that. That's incredible. And there's so much in that. I guess I, for me, it's a bit like our advisory board, which is, is, is all founders and operators and, you know, experienced individuals and, and actually we've got a partner in a VC firm on, on that and you just get such great advice because they've been there and done it and they bring a critical eye to to your decisions and you know hold you to account and stuff and and, and I really can see how having an angels on the, the cap table and on speed dial can make a really big difference and, and we've definitely seen a real rise in that and I think particularly angel syndicates like Ventures Together and various others have, are really making a big impact and I I'm sure lots of other people listening to this will be getting on board that train. I really hope you're enjoying today's episode so far. But before we continue hearing from today's mentor, I wanted to take a minute to give a shout out to our series sponsors, Alchemist. Alchemist is an industry-leading learning and development company using immersive and interactive experiences to help increase employee engagement, levels of happiness and achievement across your teams and overall productivity. Alchemist presents L&D departments with an opportunity to innovate and be bold in their approaches to blended learning. If you love the sound of this as much as we do here at JBM, then head over to thisisalchemist.com forward slash 40 minute mentor to learn more. And now back to our 40 minute mentor. Has there been any other major shifts or learnings from going from Bootstrap to, to, to raising all this external capital or anything else that you think would just be worth sharing with uh, anyone else that might be thinking about going to VC funding, having not done it before? I think there was a, a misconception going into it that investors would like tell me what to do or like, you know, boss me around. And I've never actually personally come across that many founders where that's the case. Often we're driven by our own expectations and our own ambitions more than our investors. So that was, I think, a misconception that you've got these big, bad, meanie investors like bossing you around. None of my investors do that because they're they're great and they also respect that it's my business. 
So that was a really interesting learning. And also, I, I don't think of them as my boss, but I do quite like having people kind of above or, you know, whatever it is around me to help give me structure. You know, I like a bit of that, like, okay, every quarter I need to have a board meeting and talk about progress and, and the milestones. That's actually can really help for me shape like my job as a founder. And in the early days, it's almost like so loose that it's quite hard to even like report back to anyone or anything because you're just basically on your own running it, not really sure how it's going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So true. Such good advice, actually. And I think, um, you know, I've definitely found that I found I was drifting for large parts of, you know, the early couple of years of JBM because I didn't have anyone to hold me to account. I just didn't have that. I remember how much I prepped for our first board of advisors meeting. And it's probably the most prepared I've ever been for anything because I was just so embarrassed. I was so worried about being like embarrassed that I hadn't thought about the right things or like got all my all my financials sort of sorted. So yeah, I totally see that. And no one's ever said that before. So it's really interesting. I think it's lonely, isn't it? Founder life can be really lonely. Really lonely. And like, you know, your poor partner, like every day you're like, we've done something today. And they're like, great. Well, you know, and you're like, I've got to tell you because if I don't tell you, there's no one else to really tell, you know, <laughs> like, well done. Yeah. My wife knows, you know, more than anyone else about executive search and recruitment because she's been here for like 10 and a half years, just me whinging or like, sort of going, oh, yay, we got this thing. I mean, they are the unsung heroes of entrepreneurship, really, aren't they? Just your your partners, or your friends, or your family that just kind of keep you sane during the really difficult days, for sure. So thank you, Lucinda and all other partners. I want us to switch um, gears a little bit and talk about community building, which is a big buzzword in, in entrepreneurship, um, something you've done amazingly well, and also hiring, which is close to my heart. So you have 2 million plus women use the lowdown, which is incredible. And I know that you've created this incredible community around that. So can you share a bit more about your experience of building community, how you keep engagement uh, amongst the members, particularly as things have evolved and the, the platforms kind of have grown and scaled? Yeah, I think it has to start with something that a lot of people can kind of coalesce about, like an impact or a mission or a thing that's pissing people off that you like like the match and everyone's like oh you know thank you so I, I would say a lot of that is is around the topic and the timing of the lowdown it's not necessarily around anything we we've like done you know to to kind of create that it was just a lot of hustle in the early days to get things moving and to get people to hear about us so I used to work in media I basically would like doorstep every celebrity coming into our building to tell them about us you know I'd build personal relationships with influencers who I knew had communities of their own that, you know, I could like speak to. I was incredibly hands-on when we were in the early days. And also I think it's kind of content and community go hand in hand. As a team, we create content and stuff that we really would want to read ourselves or consume or share with others. And um, we have a very high standard of like, is it interesting enough? Does it tell us new things? So I can't really tell you how, but it, it was definitely a lot of like hustle and a lot of having a high standard for what you want the company and the content and the events and everything that you do to be about and how that is interesting to get people to come and take part and engage with each other. And my advice for anyone who's looking to do it is 
I always say this to my team, like don't overcomplicate it too much. Like don't overthink it. Don't like strategize it. Just get going and test a load of stuff and see what sticks. You know, I wouldn't say that I had like a master strategy or plan. It was just very organic and working like, oh, events. Oh, wow. Events are amazing. Or, you know, we do monthly community feedback drinks where we get women together to talk about their experiences with, you know, different parts of women's health. Extraordinarily like helpful to us to be, you know, make sure that we're really tapped into what our community wants. But that was a very organic, you know, idea that we've just sort of worked with and, and now it's working incredibly well. I wouldn't say it kind of came from a huge amount of thought. <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, organic is often the best way, right? And I think, you know, already you've given already some great tips there for our listeners that are thinking about community. I think we've talked to community on this podcast quite a lot. And one thing that's become clear from all the conversations I've had, some of the very best ones do come about organically. And the worst ones or the ones that fail are like sort of forced. Uh, and the reality is the best communities are ones that exist without the people that set them up. And because there is this topic that brings people together. So I think it sounds like you've done it in absolutely the right way. And that, you know, around a topic that just is really important. So massive congrats for that. And hopefully that continues to flourish. Uh, and I think uh, I'm sure others that are building them at the moment can take some of those tips on board. On top of community, you've built a fantastic team, but you also admitted that, that you've made some hiring mistakes along the way, which I think every founder does, me included. So can you share a bit more about your experience of attracting talent? What have you also found most difficult? Finding people that are at the right stage in their career that are really ready to work in who you are at as a startup. And in the very early days, that's people who are totally comfortable with how hacky or sort of, you know, hands-on and taped together it is. And there's so many learnings I have around, like hiring the wrong people teaches you more about your culture and the way you work than hiring the right people. Because it's like you stuck like an anthropologist in the building and they are literally like, well, you guys do this. And you're like, oh, do we? Okay. We didn't realize that. So I would say I've learned more from hiring the wrong people than the right people and the right people just fit. So you don't really question it, but the wrong people don't fit. And together you work with the wrong hire to say, why is this the wrong fit? Have I, you know, have I gone too senior? Are you not used to pre-product market fit startups? Are you, is my management style just not the right way for you to, to work with? You know, you just don't want to work with a founder who works like me. Yeah. And what are our strengths like too similar? And actually I need someone who's really good at this because I'm not very good at it. So that for me has been the kind of crux of it. I'd say the hardest roles to hire for at the start were the medical roles because I initially started out speaking to lots of older medics, you know, who in the, later in their career had probably been in the NHS for longer and were really sort of, I didn't realize how shockingly innovative the lowdown was. You know, I, I just assumed that it would be obvious that you, you could review your contraception and talk about it and create data out of it. But I met so many medics who were like, whoa, 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 this isn't like, you know, I'm not touching this. And then it took me a couple of years to realize that the type of medic I needed was potentially a bit younger, you know, hadn't been sort of in the NHS for that long, was really open to tech and digital. And I know that sounds obvious now, but you've got to understand as a health tech startup, everyone, everyone always has these like 60 year old men on their like medical advisory board. So you think, oh, I need to go and find the 60 year old men. The reality is they're not any use to me at pre-seed, you know, they, they just, how are they going to really help me? Not really. So 
No, that's really good advice. I'd love to learn just a little bit about the lowdowns culture. You know, that evolves over time. So how would you describe it? And for anyone that might be looking to apply, it'd be great to understand a bit more about your growth plans and if there's any tips you'd give anyone that that, that really wants to work at the lowdown if they kind of get their CV in front of you. Yeah, I think the culture is often set by like the first couple of people and the founder. So for me, I'd talk about, I'm a very action orientated person. I don't really like talking about things. I just like doing things. Sometimes that's a weakness, but it's probably also a strength. Like I'm a really strong executor. So if you're having a conversation with me, it'll often be like, cool. So when or how are we actually going to do that thing? Instead of like, let's stroke our chins and think about it for another three months. I'd be like, that is my idea of hell. Like, no, I can't, can't handle that. So very strong kind of doing shipping bias. And then that's also been helped by our CTO, Maria, who is a very rare tech animal in that she never overcomplicates things. In fact, sometimes she does things too quickly, which I love, <laughs> apart from when they break, but we, we don't mind. That's fine. Bugs are, bugs are normal. We will always go live with bugs. But yeah, like my experience of working with engineers was always that they'd over-engineer it or they'd massively complicate or make it too complicated. And I'd be like, I just want to test this one feature. She is very much, she's got this inbuilt engine in her that just kind of loves to just keep going quite quickly. And then the other person I'd say that's critical for our culture is Dr. Fran. I've never met a doctor with hustle like Dr. Fran. Like, put it this way, to get us on a really big podcast recently, I think Dr. Fran went to like an exercise class with someone who she knew was friends with, the person who runs the podcast, and spoke to her about us. Because that is the, like the level of hustle that Dr. Fran has. She will genuinely talk or like hustle her way into a conversation with anyone, medical or non-medical, and is in, like incredibly responsive as well. So I think responsive is a very important part of our culture. And that is responsive to women and what they tell us and what they're talking to us about constantly, but also to each other. You know, we you wouldn't last long if you took a whole week to respond to a Slack message in our company, or, you know, you didn't kind of respond to a press request within three hours. Like you're just probably not going to work with us because all of us act quite quickly to get stuff out. Yeah. Amazing. Exciting times. Well, if that sounds like anyone listening, it sounds like they should wing their CV over to you when you're hiring uh, next. So yeah, amazing. Thank you for, for sharing that. We're sadly near the end of the podcast, but before we close, I just wanted to talk a bit about sort of broader education around women's health and funding. There's clearly this underlying issue that you alluded to earlier about the lack of funding and education in, in particularly women's health. So in your opinion, what needs to happen to close that gap? And how do we also, you know, make this less of a taboo topic? So it becomes more, you know, hopefully more on the radar of all the right people? So much needs to happen. It's almost impossible to answer that question. Like we are talking about like centuries of kind of sexism, you know, the way that the whole of the medical system has been not built with our needs in, in mind, you know, training, education, like there's just, it's almost kind of too big for me to, to sort of say, because I'm in it and I've like touched the corners of bits of it, I can now see how hard it is to solve. Whereas I think if you're maybe on the outside, you think, oh, it, and there must be like a quick solution here, but. When you're in it, you're like, oh man, like this is moving slowly. Yeah. Maybe other 
aspirational entrepreneurs, we can encourage them to think about solving big problems and just trying to like, not just building another fintech potentially, but actually like, what are the things, what are the challenges that, you, you know, you really see in front of you that affect society as a whole? Because I think, yeah, I guess the more people that use the lowdown, the more we can highlight the work you're doing, the more we can talk about it. Hopefully it just gradually, although not quick enough, hopefully it makes a bit of a difference. I think one of the other things that I guess we can all do any parents listening to this is is really educate our children. So do you have any advice for for parents listening who want to make sure their children, I guess particularly teenagers and, and others that are getting the right information that they need when it comes to women's health and contraception? And also as a dad myself to a seven-year-old, you know, what what advice would you have for dads who will try to be supportive and helpful? I, I remember my own dad finding all of this stuff awkward and difficult and and kind of didn't have a clue what to say so for my two sisters so any advice there would be greatly appreciated for myself and any other dads listening i think the good thing about contraception is you don't actually have to talk about sex to talk about contraception obviously you need to understand how the reproductive healthcare system works but you know we don't make our market ourselves as like a sexual pleasure brand or you know talk about actual intercourse really that much on our platform which can really help if people are, you know, embarrassed or, you know, it's actually just like a question of science and sort of interesting conversation about how ovulation is stopped. You know, we don't release an egg because of the pill. And and actually, you know, you can kind of separate it a little bit, which I think can be quite helpful. Not saying you shouldn't talk about sex and pleasure with children, but I think the mechanics of contraception, just to explain that and also explain the options available, can be talked about in that way if, if people are embarrassed. Not blocking out or, or or ignoring sources on social media. Like there's tons of information on TikTok and Instagram. I think a lot of the healthcare system is in denial about how young people are consuming that content and saying, oh, we'll just, you know, we'll just rebuild the NHS website and they'll come there. And I'm like, no, they won't. They'll still see that video on TikTok that says that if they get a core fit up, they'll die. You know, and we still need to have an open conversation about what myths or information people are seeing on social media, which is why I, I think our Instagram's been so successful, because we're trying to blend fun, interesting bite-sized content that we know young people want to consume but it's also reviewed by medical professionals you know and it's reliable so yeah I'd say those are probably my two tips and it's not easy and we try to create our platform to make it easier for people to either figure out what's right for them or, or change their contraception we have a really handy recommended like quiz on our, on our website, which thousands of people use every month, which helps them sort of start to think about which contraception might be right for them as well. Awesome. Thank you, Alice. That's amazing. I think for all parents listening, that's lots of great advice there. We're sadly at a close. So final three questions in one sentence, what do you think the future holds for the lowdown? Being the way that the next billion women make their healthcare decisions. Love that. Thank you. And if you could be mentored by anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Anne Bowden from Starling Bank. I've already contacted her several times. Anne, if you're listening, I read her book when I was going for a really, really tough time. And it was so good. If you've not read it, it's amazing what that woman did to get that bank up and running. Amazing. As a uh, long-term Starling customer, I have a lot of time for Anne Bowden. So yeah, we will definitely try and get her on the pod to so I can ask her if she'll be your mentor. 
Uh, and finally, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received that you'd like to share with our listeners? It's not a one specific piece of advice, but my mum has always said to me, like, go for it. And I think that's really how I want to live my life, like giving things a shot. So those three words, I think, have guided a lot of my thinking and my ambition in, in being an entrepreneur. Amazing. Alice, it's been such a pleasure. It's lovely to see you again. Congratulations on the recent news, the engagement. How amazing. It's, that's the first of the podcast that we've had this exclusive. So thank you for sharing that with us. And congratulations on on all you've achieved thus far with the lowdown. Really excited to see how the business evolves over the years ahead. And you have our full support. So yeah, look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And that's all for today and for this series of 40 Minute Mentor. I can't thank you enough for tuning in over the past 12 weeks and for all your continued support along the way. It's been a real honor to have such incredible guests on this series who all shared such brilliant and actionable mentorship with you all. I really hope you enjoyed the series as much as me. And if you did, I would be so grateful if you could leave us a review. You can do that on ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm or your favorite podcast platform. And if you have any ideas for future episodes or guests, then do reach out to our producer, Hannah, on hannah at jbmc.co.uk. And don't go too far as we've got a number of brilliant feature episodes coming out over the coming weeks. So make sure you hit subscribe now so you don't miss them. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll see you again next week for some more pocket-sized mentorship. <laughs>